From New York, this is Democracy Now! Our entire island has been devastated by this, but um, uh, none more so than the individuals who are still looking for loved ones or know that they've already lost their loved ones. The death toll from last week's devastating fires in Maui have climbed to 96, making it the deadliest wildfire in over a century in the United States. And officials fear the actual death toll may be far higher. We'll go to Maui for the latest, then speak to the climate scientist, Michael Mann. And we simply wouldn't be seeing this in the absence of human-caused warming, in the absence of the climate crisis, uh, the warming of the planet from the burning of fossil fuels. And then to Ecuador, where the country's still in shock after the assassination of presidential hopeful Fernando Villavicencio. This is a political crime, which has the character of terrorism. And we do not doubt that this murder is an attempt to sabotage the electoral process. We'll speak to the Ecuadorian economist Andres Arauz. He's running for vice president of Ecuador in Sunday's elections, which are scheduled to proceed as planned. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Hawaii, the death toll from the Maui wildfire has reached 96, continues to rise, making it the deadliest U.S. wildfire in a century. Family resource centers have been set up to help survivors desperately trying to locate their missing loved ones. This is a Maui resident who said this weekend nine of his relatives are still missing. I cannot describe what my feeling right now, so it's all, 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 I can feel it underneath me, so, 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 when I see the Lahaina, uh, Lahaina town itself, I cannot describe how, how, how hard feelings I get. The blaze decimated the historic town of Lahaina as it spread at a rate of a mile a minute, propelled by wind gusts from Hurricane Dora of up to 81 miles per hour. A lawsuit filed against Hawaiian Electric Industries alleges electrified power lines blown over by the high winds helped the wildfire spread at such a rapid pace and that the company should have de-energized their power lines after a high wind alert. We'll have more on Hawaii and the climate crisis going to Maui after headlines. In Niger, the ruling military junta said they'll prosecute deposed President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason following his ouster last month in the July 26th coup. The U.S. warned last week of the deteriorating health of Bazoum and two of his family members that have been held in the presidential palace in Niamey with dwindling supplies of food and no electricity. Meanwhile, the Nigerian Islamic scholars say Niger's coup leaders are open to meeting with ECOWAS in hopes of coming to a diplomatic resolution after the West African bloc last week said it had activated a standby force for possible military intervention. Over the weekend, a delegation of the Nigerian military traveled to Guinea, where they met with Mamadi Doumbouya, who is the interim president of Guinea after leading a military coup in October of 2021. He expressed solidarity with Niger's coup. As far as the Republic of Guinea is concerned, we are Pan-African. When our people have problems, we're always there and will always be there. And that's what happened with my brothers in Mali, Burkina and Niger. 
As far as we're concerned, we're the only ones who can find solutions to our problems. Pro-coup Nigerians have continued to protest against any outside military action. On Friday, they rallied outside the French army base in the capital, Niamey. Six asylum seekers have died after a boat carrying dozens of migrants to the U.K. sank in the English Channel. Several people are still missing, while 55 were rescued in efforts largely led by French coastal authorities. The mayor of the port city of Calais, Natacha Bouchard, slammed British policy, which they say saddles France with handling the mounting crisis at the maritime border. We are systematically being fooled by the British government. When are we going to bang our fists on the table? When are we going to threaten them with action so that they can put an end to it? Calais is not the border of England. They don't want to do the dirty work of saying, I accept or I do not accept refugees in my territory. This comes as two refugees, including a baby, have died after another boat capsized off the coast of Tunisia. Here in the United States, a three-year-old toddler has died while in a migrant bus that was on the way to Chicago from Texas. The child's death is first reported by Texas authorities since Republican Governor Greg Abbott began busing thousands of asylum seekers to Democrat-led cities last year, including Chicago and New York. CBS News reported the child was from Venezuela. Taiwan's Vice President William Lai defiantly declared Taiwan will not back down to Chinese threats as he visited the U.S. in what has been billed as a transit stop on his way to Paraguay's presidential inauguration this week. China vowed to take forceful and resolute measures in response to his stop in the U.S., which Beijing considers a challenge to its sovereignty over the territory. He is a front-runner in Taiwan's January presidential election. He spoke during a lunch with supporters in New York City Sunday. Peace and security in the Taiwan Strait is not only Taiwan's problem, but rather an international issue that concerns all the countries of the world. When Taiwan is safe, the world is safe. When there's peace in the Taiwan Strait, there will be peace in the world. In the occupied West Bank, mourners marched in a funeral procession Friday for 23-year-old Mahmoud Jarad, who was shot dead during an Israeli raid in the Tulkarum refugee camp. At least eight others were injured. This is Mahmoud Jarad's mother. He was ambitious, like other youngsters, what the youngster wants, to have a home, marry, everything disappeared. A group of over 1,500 academics from around the world, including Israel and the United States, signed a statement condemning Israel's, quote, regime of apartheid, unquote, against Palestinians. They write, quote, there cannot be democracy for Jews in Israel as long as Palestinians live under a regime of apartheid, unquote. In other news from the region, Palestinian officials, including President Mahmoud Abbas, welcomed their first Saudi Arabian ambassador. Nayef al-Sadari will serve as an envoy to Palestine and consul general in Jerusalem. This comes as the U.S. has been pushing for the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. 
Jordan enacted what's been described by rights groups as a draconian cybercrime law. The legislation, which will go into effect in a month, includes fines and even prison for posting content deemed to be immoral, insulting religion, or undermining national unity. It also punishes people who publish names or pictures of police officers and bans certain measures that protect a user's identity. A statement issued by over a dozen rights groups, including Human Rights Watch, said, quote, vague provisions open the door for Jordan's executive branch to punish individuals for exercising their right to freedom of expression, forcing the judges to convict citizens in most cases. The U.N. said Friday it's completed the transfer of more than a million barrels of oil from a decaying supertanker off Yemen's Red Sea coast. This is a major disaster averted. It was a ticking time bomb, as many called it, and it could have destroyed hundreds of thousands of livelihoods. It could have affected the shipping up the Red Sea towards the Suez Canal. It could have destroyed biodiversity and fisheries for a quarter of a century. In Pakistan, Anwar Ulhaq Kakar, a senator from Balochistan province, has been named as caretaker prime minister ahead of elections, which are supposed to take place within 90 days following the dissolution of the National Assembly last week. But it's unclear if Pakistan will be ready for elections by November after the outgoing government of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif approved a new census, which the Election Commission will now have to rush to translate into new boundaries. Observers are warning a delay in elections could hand more control to the military, which already exerts significant power in Pakistani politics. Former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who's accused the military of going after him, is imprisoned and barred from running for office on corruption charges that he's denied. In Argentina, voters cast their ballots in a crowded primary Sunday. Far-right populist Javier Millet emerged as the surprising lead, receiving the largest number of votes, about 30 percent. The 52-year-old, as an admirer of former U.S. President Trump, who's vowed to shutter Argentina's central bank, opposes sex education, wants to facilitate the purchasing of guns, and is a climate crisis denier. Millet has served in Argentina's Congress since 2021. He addressed supporters Sunday. Estamos we are facing the end of the caste model, that model based on that atrocity which says that where there is a need, a right is born, but forgets that someone has to pay for that right, whose ultimate manifestation is that aberration called social justice. Argentina's current president, Alberto Fernandez, is not seeking re-election as Argentina faces a worsening economic crisis with soaring inflation, the general election scheduled for October. In Ecuador, presidential candidates participated in a debate Sunday night where they vowed to address violence and security issues following the assassination of the presidential hopeful Fernando Villa Vicencio last week. An empty podium stood in his place while candidates held a moment of silence before starting the debate. Construya, or the Build political party, has opted for journalist Christian Zarita to replace Via Vicencio as presidential candidate, reversing its previous decision to go for Via Vicencio's vice presidential nominee, Andrea Gonzalez. The election is scheduled for this Sunday, August 20th. Meanwhile, Ecuadorian authorities have transferred a powerful gang leader accused of threatening Via Vicencio before the candidate was killed to a maximum security. Security prison. Some 4,000 soldiers and police were deployed to help relocate Adolfo Macias from a low security jail. This comes as Via Vicencio's widow blamed the state for her husband's murder.
They did not protect him as they should have protected him. The state was in charge of Fernando's security. The state is directly responsible for the murder of my husband, Fernando Villavicencio. The state still has to give many answers about everything that happened. His personal guards did not do their job. I do not want to think that they sold my husband to be murdered in this infamous way. After headlines, we'll go to Quito, Ecuador, to speak with the vice presidential candidate, Andres Arauz. Back in the United States, Kansas police raided a local newspaper, the Marion County Record, and the home of its publisher and co-owner, Joan Mayer, Friday, seizing computers and other materials. One day later, on Saturday, the 98-year-old Joan Mayer died. The paper blamed the police action, which it said, quote, stressed beyond her limits. The raid reportedly stemmed from a dispute between the newspaper and a local restaurant owner who accused the Marion County record of illegally obtaining information about a drunk driving incident. But it appears the newspaper had also been actively investigating the Marion police chief, Gideon Cody, after sexual misconduct charges at a previous job in Kansas City. Details about that investigation were on a computer seized in the raid. Now, over 30 news organizations and press groups have published an open letter to Marion's police chief blasting the raid, writing, quote, newsroom searches and seizures are among the most intrusive actions law enforcement can take with respect to the free press and the most potentially suppressive of free speech, unquote. The group Reporters Without Borders said the seizure may violate federal law. A federal judge in New York ordered Sam Bankman-Fried to jail after revoking bail for the disgraced founder of collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX. He'd been under house arrest at his parents' home in Palo Alto, California, on the Stanford campus, while awaiting his October trial on fraud and money laundering charges. The judge said Bankman-Fried twice tried to interfere with witnesses in his case, including giving reporters documents Bankman-Fried is accused of using— deposits in FTX for real estate purchases, political and charitable donations. Attorney General Merrick Garland named David Weiss the federal prosecutor investigating Hunter Biden to special counsel. Prosecutors said they could not come to a new plea deal to settle tax and gun charges against the president's son after a judge rejected a previous deal last month. The latest twist significantly increases the chance of Hunter Biden going on trial as President Biden campaigns for reelection. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has called former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and journalist George Chitty to testify Tuesday before the grand jury investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election. Chitty is believed to have stumbled upon a meeting of Trump-supporting fake electors at Georgia's state capitol. He was thrown out of that meeting. A fourth indictment against former President Trump and his co-conspirators is widely expected from Georgia this week, with possibly as many as 12 people indicted. And in other news from Georgia, activists campaigning to get a public referendum on Cop City has gotten 80,000 signatures, surpassing the minimum number needed to get the measure on the November ballot. 
The vote to stop Cop City has set a stretch goal of 100,000 signatures before it submits the petition next Monday. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we go to Maui, where the death toll from the devastating fires have climbed to 96, with the number expected to be far higher in the deadliest wildfire in over a century in the United States. Stay with us. Can we erase our history? Is it as easy as this? Plausible deniability I swear I've never heard of it And I can close the door on us But the room still exists And I know you're in it Hours of phrases I've memorized Thousands of lines on the Expert in a Dying Field by the Beths. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll from the Maui wildfires has reached nearly 100 and is expected to climb far higher in what is now considered the deadliest wildfire in the United States in a century. It's clear the fire is Hawaii's worst natural disaster. The blaze decimated the historic town of Lahaina, which once served as the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom, as it spread at a rate of a mile every minute, propelled by wind gusts from Hurricane Dora hundreds of miles away. A lawsuit filed against the utility, Hawaiian Electric, alleges electrified power lines blown over by the high winds helped the wildfire spread at such a rapid pace, and that the company should have de-energized these power lines after a high wind alert. This is a survivor of the fire named Akineziva, describing how her family got stuck in traffic while trying to escape the ferocious flames. She was with her husband and three kids, age 15, 13, and 9. They recorded part of their experience on a cell phone as the blue skies around them turned gray, then black. This here is where we were at before we made the decision, because this is the electrical that lit up in flames. So I was—that's my husband in the passenger seat, because he kept getting in and out to hose down small fires that were starting. Just from our parking stall to the entrance of our apartment complex. It went from blue skies to gray to black. And all we seen was embers from fire that we had no idea what's going on. There was no siren, nothing. And um, I mean, it was just heartbreaking seeing our community, my neighbors, like lots of elderly people. Um, trying to make it down the stairs just to get into their car. Um, and out of nowhere, this fire jumped from the parking structure over to a tree and then onto an electric post. By then, we were right next to that electric post. And as a mom, I mean, I'm so many things are going through my mind. Cars are panicking. 
and I have it on video where my son was, you know, in the video. He's like, oh, mom, it's hot. I, I can feel it. So instantly I'm telling my husband, I need a reverse. I need a reverse. We, we need to get out and run. Everything's coming so quick. We could feel the heat. It's sitting in our car. And out of nowhere, I, I, out of nowhere, I just hear banging on this window. And everything's dark, so I look to my left, and I'm literally right next to this car where this grandmother is yelling for help. And she's just telling me, please help me, I have a baby. And I just, you know, at that time, I'm like, what do I do? So of course, I jump out, I tell my husband, you tend to the grandma, I'm grabbing the baby. I run out, I run around her car, open up the back, the baby's on her side. Right behind her, I reach over, I grab this baby. She was about two and a half, three years old. I grabbed her, she had, she was sitting on a blanket. I wrapped her with the blanket and I told my kids, you guys run, don't turn around and look for me. And my nine-year-old couldn't. She just kept telling me, mom, I can't. Please, mom. This is the car where we saved the baby from. And we took out running this way. Run out this way, right here to the corner. There's a fence that Mona and my husband and the neighbor bent to get everybody to safety. We were all hiding behind this wall here. We run to the corner and we meet up with a few pets there, our neighbors. There's about a good nine of us, about a good nine of us. We meet there and we just notice that we're at a dead end. We're at a dead end and we're just standing there. We have our backs to this building and we're looking at each other and we're like, you know, my son was like, oh mom, is this it? And I mean, what do you tell your kids? You know, and, um, and I told my kids, you know, if it is, my husband told him if it is, you know, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for my family. Oh, Lahaina's, Lahaina's home. I mean, so many times I tell myself, I need to get off this rock. The moment I'm in the air, I'm homesick. <laughs> I mean, being here on the other side of the island, I am grateful. I'm thankful that my brother and his wife opened their home to us. But just being here, just being here on this side of the island, I, I'm still homesick. Like, my heart is in Lahaina. I will always have a place in my heart for Lahaina. I mean, Lahaina's home, period. That was Akanese Val, who escaped the fire in Lahaina Town with her husband and her three kids, 15, 13, and 9. This weekend, relatives of the missing frantically search for any sign that their loved ones may still be alive. Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson described the scene in Lahaina in an interview with ABC News Sunday. The closest thing I can compare it to is uh, perhaps a, a war zone where maybe a, a bomb went off. It was uh, cars in the street, doors open, um, you know, melted to the ground. Um, most structures uh, no longer exist and uh, for blocks and blocks of, uh, of this. I'm familiar with what it looked like uh, growing up uh, here on Maui, especially with my mom working at one of the restaurants there, the Pioneer Inn. 17 years and so it, it doesn't resemble anything that looked like uh, 
that it looked like when I was growing up. Meanwhile, many residents are asking why Hawaii's outdoor siren warning system, with about 80 alarms on the island of Maui alone, did not get activated to warn the residents about the fire. Hawaii Emergency Management Agency spokesperson told CNN, quote, nobody at the state and nobody at the county attempted to activate those sirens based on our records. It was largely a function of how fast the flames were moving. They were trying to coordinate response on the ground. Hawaii officials released a report last year that ranked which natural disasters residents would most likely be threatened by. The list included tsunamis, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. The risk of wildfires to human life was listed as low. This is Democratic U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii speaking Sunday. I'm not going to make any excuses for this tragedy, but the attorney general has launched a review of what happened with those sirens and some of the other actions that were taken. So that is happening. And uh, there will be uh, time enough, I would say, for those kinds of uh, reviews and investigations to occur. Hawaii Senator Hirono was speaking on CNN. For more, we go to Kula, Maui, to speak with Kalikoa Kiyayo a professor of Hawaiian studies at the University of Hawaii, Maui College. We welcome you to Democracy Now! We were also going to be joined by another guest, but her uncle just died in hospital, which is an indication of the number of people. I mean, we're right now the number's at 96, but, Professor, how much larger, based on your information, knowing friends, family, neighbors, do you think this number is going to go? Ano ay kavelina ano ay ukuapao Amy democracy now ino wao mawini aloha. To answer your question, you know, unfortunately, what's um, you know, I myself, what I witnessed, and I myself in understanding and discussing and talking with others uh, intimate with that situation, as I was told by um, a high-ranking county official, you know, they they hope and they don't expect it to reach as high as you know four to five hundred. But they would not be surprised. Now, I know that sounds outrageous and sounds high, but we do know there's still hundreds of residents and um, visitors who are still unaccounted for. So, you know, although we're slowly reaching 100, there are still many, many cars, burnt out cars and many burnt out structures and homes and buildings that have yet to really be um, surveyed and looked at. So. Professor Ka'eo, can you talk about the fact that there were no warning sirens? I mean, and you've got this lawsuit now um, against the electric company. The idea, though it's not exactly clear what happened, that it's these power lines going down in this intense wind that sparked fires. Can you talk about the lack of preparedness? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's in one way, it is lack of preparedness, I, I guess, the intensity of the wind. And, you know, um, and people don't, might, might not recognize that on Maui at that time, there were four major fires that were happening on Maui at that time, Lahaina just being one of them. Um, the Lahaina fire, unfortunately, uh, wasn't aerated. There have been fires in the past pretty, um, pretty close to the, the, where the, most of the damage occurred. Um, it is very true. I, I know for a fact that i talking with people that I know um, who were um, – startled in fact by the heat and the wind and were very afraid and were you know kind of hunkered down in their apartments at that time right in the heart of Lahaina and it was only because of already feeding the heat heat that was approaching the building that in the very last moments that 
you know, I personally uh, know a story of a family, a uh, single woman with her children who barely escaped. And really because she had a four-wheel drive truck and was able to kind of climb over, you know, certain parts of the streets and navigate away and, and herself barely, barely uh, got out of there alive. And, you know, unfortunately, when she left the apartment and left behind her, she saw and witnessed um, the destruction and the burning, in fact, of the building and cars and people behind her. So, you know, and she herself said that there was no warning sign, no warning sounds. No one had come around. It was just basically uh, their own instinct. And, and you know, uh, and because of feeling the heat that was coming with the wind. And this, it wasn't just the, the power of the wind, but it was the heat of the wind that really, you know, made them fear for their lives. And in the last moments, I really, you know, because of luck, sheer luck, was able to escape. Um, and I can say specifically, um, the following morning, I, I was able to go by boat and, and walk right into uh, the major area that had been destroyed. And what I saw was, in fact, many, many dozens and dozens of telephone poles on the ground, um, lines that were still you know, burning and uh, seemed to be alive. And you could still see the sparkings and, and, and so forth right on the street. Um, and many of the um, homes and buildings, I mean, were, were destroyed to ashes. And so you could really see the intensity of the fire and the wind and from, you know, from the accounts that I've, I've heard from the people I've spoke to. As they said, it was as if the wind was on fire. It was as if charcoal itself was blowing. And, and so, you know, there were many people that I understand who were trapped in their cars also. And, you know, while contemplating, should they try to escape and run through the strong burning wind or should they stay in their car? And, you know, I think perhaps because of the fear, because of the actual heat of the fire of the winds, and many of them were unable to escape, you know, from the roads because of those power lines that, because of the strong winds that had fallen upon the streets and the For roads, really prevented many people from escaping. Professor Ka'eo, you teach Hawaiian studies at the University yeah. of Hawaii, Maui College. Um, can you tell us what it means to say that Lahaina, Lahaina Town, is the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom? Give us a brief history, uh, how Hawaii became a part of the United States and what its relationship is with the mainland. What should we should understand about the historic nature of Lahaina Town? I find the rest of the media talks about the tourist destination, but there's a yeah. reason for that, is because it is right. so historic. Yeah, you know, Lahaina is one of those places, uh, you know, some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. It's on the leeward side of, of the mountain, so it's very warm. Um, it was also a place of lots of water. So this is one of the things also maybe we had a chance to talk about later. Um, historically, it was the capital in, you know, ancient times, from ancient times immemorial, really of the island of Maui, where the seat of government would be held. Uh, many of the highest ranking so-called chiefs held court in Lahaina. Um, in fact, right in the middle of the Haina was a little island in a little like fishbone lake area called Mokuula, where, you know, the highest ranking chiefs and some of the most sacred items uh, and, and so-called Akur gods would be, would, be, would be housed. And so from time immemorial, you know, the Haina was always seen as a really a important breadbasket of the island of Maui, therefore a central place of the island. And into more modern history, um, Lahaina specifically was the, you know, really the, the, the capital of the kingdom of Hawaii. And that's because of its is protected and sheltered waters uh, from the ocean, um, you know, right into the early whaling period, in fact, into the beginning of the Hawaiian kingdom. And it's really during the Hawaiian kingdom period that Lahaina starts to play a very important role as a kind of a, a commercial center uh, for trade. 
where ships from all over the world would dock and so forth. And so, you know, Lahaina becomes a place where, you know, uh, it's kind of like the crossroads of the Pacific with uh, many ships. Um, in, in just to kind of add, you know, uh, the royal so-called family uh, being raised in Lahaina um, during the early 1800s, where Hawaii for a short period, in fact, was, under, was a protectorate under British Empire, part of the British um, Empire. Anyway. Um, and in, later on in 1839, the first um, Declaration of Rights, followed by 1840, the first uh, Hawaiian constitution was written right actually in Lahaina. And she really was a seat of the government. People don't recognize the first so-called school, not just in Hawaii and the Pacific, but you know, many times in, in the context of putting Hawaii within the, the, the context of the United States. You know, it said that Hawaii, or sorry, Lahaina Luna, which is a school, uh, was started in 1831. It's considered the oldest you know, school west of the so-called Rockies. Um, um, and so, you know, for many, for a long period up into the mid 1850s, you know, Hawaii was seen as, again, the, the, the main capital, um, you know, during that period of uh, growth, especially economic growth, um, there was a huge transformation where agriculture and because of the large amounts of water in that area, in fact, the, ma the major area in Lahaina, one of the names, in fact, was Waine'e. The word Waia means water. The word Ne'e means to move. You know, unfortunately, today, most of that water no longer exists due to um, streams which have been diverted, uh, you know, uh, the, the, um, the transformation of the, the environment from, you know, traditional native plants and, 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 and uh, so-called forests, which have been replaced first by sugar, and then now, unfortunately, being replaced by these, um, what we call gentleman estates. These are, you know, uh, very wealthy so-called mansions that are built in these in these areas. And so, you know, you can see there's a transformation where Lahaina one time was a very important agricultural center, commercial trade center uh, to the whaling period, and then became a large uh, sugar uh, plantation era. And then um, in the 1960s, really, really began the, you know, the transformation of Lahaina really into a resort area. And so you had the vestiges of this real old kind of sense of a, of a, of a sea town. Um, then slowly being replaced with um, what becomes, you know, commercialized tourist size uh, centers. And right down the line of Lahaina Town, you have Ka'anapali, which is a you know, major, and Kapalu are major resort areas. And so the economy, the population, and the, escape, the uh, landscape itself was transformed really to meet the needs of mass tourism. And I think that's also one of the, the issues that you'll find if you look deep enough, you kind of find um, which caused uh, major transformation of the land itself. And so therefore, um, you know, and then you compound that, I think, with the issues that you have with global warming and, and so forth. And you can see the extremes of uh, winds and extremes, perhaps, of heat and the, the drying up of the land itself um, and the denuding of the land itself, which really helped to spark, um, you know, really became the tinder for this, this matchbox that later exploded like a bomb in Lahaina. And, you know, unfortunately and horrifically, you know, our people who have lived there since time immemorial, um, you know, are suffering because of the consequences that have been you know, imposed really from outside foreign forces. In a moment, we're going to speak with the world-renowned climate scientist Michael Mann. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Professor Kaeo, about the mutual aid on the ground and also ask you about the— uh, demographics of Maui in terms of Native Hawaiians, if you can talk about that. And then what kind of help is most needed at this point? 
Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so you know, right now this it was a very, very slow process and low start, I can say, from the very beginning, just slowly getting aid. And so it's only recently, I'm probably like the last 24 hours, I would think that you have much of the supplies and, and aid that's needed have slowly has trickled in um into the Lahaina area. And I understand, you know, part of it of course is difficult because it's still a very dangerous place because of the fires. Um and so uh, you know, fortunately, fortunately enough, you know, because of the work of the community, and I gotta really, really praise our community. You know, both Hawaiian and non-Hawaiian community. Many of people have again lived here for generations, and those who have recently moved here, including visitors, have all chipped in and worked hard to um, show their aloha, aloha and love for our place by participating and really providing the kind of supplies. And you know, I you know um, was warned by seeing that even when you know. You know, unfortunately, I think government failed in regards to providing the necessities of protection and safety and health for our people. You know, our people stepped up and, you know, I myself was able to participate in bringing in supplies uh, by boat, you know, uh, you know, so-called by boat because we weren't allowed to drive into the area. And, and by boat, much of the supplies had been brought in. And then later on, even by today, by small planes, people started to bring in supplies. Um, you know, hopefully um, this continues and hopefully, you know, whether it's medical concerns or um, providing the kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, just bringing in people to come in to look at whether or not we have poisons or we have um, the ash and the soot and uh, and, the, and what you might find is remnants from home and paint and, you know, lead and we, whatever you might have. In we just, is, is we just have 30 seconds, but are you concerned in the rebuilding process of Native Hawaiians being pushed out? Yes, yes I think that's a very important point. My big concern, in fact, has been that Really at the forefront or at the end of the table is that the Native Hawaiian population, the families who are from, again, since time immemorial in Lahaina, should be at the forefront in developing, managing, and planning. Um, not, as, not just what's going on now, but really in the revitalization in, in Lahaina to ensure, in fact, that Native Hawaiian population continues to exist and it doesn't become replaced. You know, as a saying that, you know, this idea that, that so-called to supplant the Native and I kind of always chant the idea to replant the native into places like Lahaina. And, you know, hopefully we're able to garner enough push and political support to ensure that the community leaders of Lahaina help to define what's best for Lahaina in the future. Kalikoa, Kaeo, I want to thank you very much for being with us, Professor of Hawaiian Studies at the University of Hawaii uh, Maui College, speaking to us on Maui. Coming up, we'll speak to climate scientist Michael Mann and then to Ecuador. Stay with us. Mi memoria, uh, goodbye to my memory by Maria Uzbek, an Ecuadorian musician. 
Later in the show, we'll go to Quito for an update on the assassination of the presidential hopeful Fernando Villas-Ascencia. But first, this is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We look at how the fires in Hawaii it killed at least 100 people and likely far more were made worse by the climate crisis, which has led to a rise in temperatures at the same time Hawaii is facing a drought. This was amplified by Hurricane Dora Tuesday when it passed south of Hawaii, hundreds of miles away, as a Category 4 storm quickly spread the fire. Climate change is also linked to stronger hurricanes. Last week, the scientist Michael Mann wrote on social media, what we're seeing in Maui is a compound climate catastrophe, where an immediate factor, in this case unusually strong winds from the outer bands of a passing hurricane, interact with background state extreme drought that has been in place for a month. Michael Mann joins us now, the presidential distinguished professor and director of the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability and Media at the University of Pennsylvania. His upcoming book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor Mann. If you can start off by um, making that link, as many say, no, this is about weather. It's nothing to do with the climate crisis. Uh, teach. Yeah, thanks, Amy. It's good to be with you, although it seems we never have good news to talk about. And uh, the stories that you know, we, we've heard reported here uh, are just uh, so harrowing. And this is the climate crisis. It's here and now. It's impacting us today in profound ways. And, and this is what, uh, you know, just the latest example. And there is clearly a climate component to what's happened here, a climate change component. Uh, those winds that you talked about um, are governed by differences in pressure, in surface pressure. Uh, a hurricane is a low pressure system. In the subtropics, you have high pressures. And the difference between them, the gradient, as we call it, in pressure between the high and the low is what determines the strength of those winds. And so we have higher and higher pressure over time in this region of the world associated with the changing atmospheric circulation associated with climate change. High pressure to the north. We had a storm, a rapidly intensifying storm, and climate change uh, encourages rapid intensification of these storms that gave us that low pressure to the south. That difference in pressure gave us those huge winds, and it interacted with an epic drought. Um, and that drought is part of the climate story here as well. As we see more and more high pressure in the summer over this region of the planet, uh, we see less rainfall. Uh, hotter temperatures mean more evaporation of what soil moisture there is. And so we see this epic drought uh, the winds uh, did sort of provide the spark, in a sense. Uh, the downed power lines provided the spark. But what allowed these fires to spread so quickly, uh, to become so damaging, was in substantial part the huge amount of fuel there was in the form of dry materials, the tinderbox conditions uh, that are, are, you know, are, are there today. All of those things have been impacted by climate change. So we can't tell this story without talking about the climate crisis. I want to turn right now to President Biden. Last week, during an interview with the Weather Channel, meteorologist Stephanie Abrams um, asked him—he was in Arizona at the time—asked President Biden— um, 
to talk about a climate emergency. President Biden said he'd practically declared a climate emergency. Mr. President, you call climate change a code red for humanity. The World Health Organization said it will cause an additional quarter of a million deaths a year starting in 2030. Are you prepared to declare a national emergency with respect to climate change? I've already done that. National emergency, we've conserved more land. We've moved in, we've rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. We've passed a $368 billion climate control facility. We're, we're, we're moving. It's the, it is the existential threat to humanity. So you've already declared that national emergency. Practically speaking, yes. Yeah. Practically speaking. Michael Mann, could you explain what it would mean if a climate emergency were declared in this country? Yeah. So, you know, there, there was a little bit of, um, of word uh, ev evasion there, I suppose, in, in uh, President Biden's response, because, of course, what that means specifically declaring a national emergency is that you uh, can bring uh, funds uh, immediately to bear um, on the problem. It, it's something that the, the chief executive can do through executive uh, authority. Now, I imagine, you know, uh, the president is a bit averse to declaring a national emergency emergency because we've seen that abused. For example, Donald Trump tried to use that as a pretext for building his war at the southern border. So I think there's um, there, there, there's sort of some, uh, you know, uh, there, there is some concern about how that can be abused. Um, and, you know, the climate crisis is this continually uh, evolving and worsening crisis. So um, declaring it as an emergency sort of sounds like we're talking about an acute problem, like we can just bring a whole bunch of resources to bear, um, solve the problem, and we're done. That's not what's going on here. We, of course, uh, have to continue to uh, provide more and more resources to bring to bear. We need policies that will get us off fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Now, the president's right. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, that he signed into law last year, um, that does get us somewhere down the road, but it doesn't go far enough. We need more action. The president is somewhat limited right now by a split Congress, Republicans who will oppose everything he tries to do. And he's encountering re uh, resistance uh, with the conservative court system now. So when he tries to, for example, block pipelines um, through executive authority, uh, the uh, the court system is rejecting uh, those attempts. And so what it comes down to is us. We've got to turn out in droves. Those of us who care about the climate crisis have to turn out in droves in the next election and elect climate forward politicians because we will not see the progress that we need without uh, massive policy support, without uh, overwhelming majorities in the Senate and Congress and a president who will all work together to solve what is the defining crisis of our time, the climate crisis. Michael Mann, I hope we'll be coming back to you soon. Uh, presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania, author of the forthcoming book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Ecuador to look at last week's assassination of presidential hopeful Fernando Villa Vicencio. He was shot dead at a campaign rally on Wednesday in Quito. 
He was shot in the head three times. He was running on a platform opposing corruption and organized crime. His death came just 10 days before Ecuador's general election, which is scheduled to proceed on Sunday as planned. Authorities in Ecuador have arrested six people in connection with the murder. One suspect was killed. Officials said all of the suspects in custody are Colombian and alleged members of a drug trafficking group. Over the weekend, via Vicencio's party, the Build Ecuador movement tapped journalist Christian Zurita to replace him as its presidential candidate, reversing an earlier decision to go with via Vicencio's running mate, Andrea Gonzalez, because they were concerned that since she was on as VP candidate, she might be disqualified in running for president. Christian Zedita spoke in Quito Sunday. Fernando's ideas and our government plan are totally intact, and we are going to fulfill them. Together with him, we created this anti-terrorism plan, this anti-mafia plan to protect Ecuador. On Sunday night, presidential candidates took part in a debate where they vowed to address violence and security issues. An empty podium stood in Via Vicencio's place. Uh, they observed a moment of silence. This is presidential frontrunner Luis Gonzalez of the Citizen Revolution Movement. We already did it once. We'll return security on the streets so they don't kill us with a firm hand against crime. That was Ecuador's presidential frontrunner, Luisa Gonzalez, of the Citizen Revolution Movement. We go now to Guayaquil, Ecuador, where we're joined by her running mate, the economist, former presidential candidate, Andres Arauz. He served as director of Ecuador's Central Bank, then Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent under former President Rafael Correa. You can go to democracynow.org uh, to see our interviews with President Correa when he was president. Um, our guest is now joining us uh, from uh, Quito. Thanks so much for being with us. Can you start off by responding to the assassination of Via Vicencio? Thank you, uh, Amy. Good morning. Yes, uh, we are extremely concerned about the assassination of Fernando Villavicencio. This is a direct attack on Ecuador's democracy. It cannot uh, remain in impunity. Uh, we unfortunately are extremely, uh, we suspect that there is a direct link between the current uh, government. There is uh, uh, wide enough evidence, ample evidence, that shows that there have been uh, uh, clear omissions and responsibilities in the security team uh, directed by the national police that was supposed to protect him. Uh, there is even uh, evidence of negligence in this case, and it is extremely worrisome because uh, it is an attack on democracy and it is an attack on all of us, all Ecuadorians. Uh, we are precisely in this uh, uh, election. It's a snap election because of uh, Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso's links to narco-trafficking organizations. The famous Leon de Troya report that showed that he had links uh, to the uh, narco-trafficking mafias even in the early stages of his government. And that unfortunately, for the first time of Ecuador, in Ecuador, have uh, led this country into being completely polluted with narco-trafficking organizations uh, in the highest levels of government. A week before his murder, the slain um, presidential candidate uh, had accused Adolfo Fito Macias of threatening him and his campaign team. 
He's in prison. And uh, this weekend, um, authorities went to the prison and moved him to a high-security prison. Can you talk about the significance of this? Yes, it's a move that has been uh, widely expected and been something that uh, Ecuadorian society has been pressuring for for a long time. But uh, Guillermo Lasso's government had been, uh, uh, you know, quite uh, reticent from doing that because of uh, suspected links with this uh, organization, with this crime criminal organization. Uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago after the assassination of the mayor of Manta, one of the biggest cities in Ecuador, uh, Fito, precisely this character, uh, you know, was giving a, a press conference from within uh, the, the jail, uh, from within prison, uh, escorted by a police intelligence officer. So uh, it, it really is uh, worrisome. We see that there are clear links uh, between uh, the, the current government and these uh, mafia organizations. The U.S. ambassador to Ecuador in December of 2021 accused of the Ecuadorian police being filled with narco generals. And unfortunately, our prosecutor's office in the Ecuadorian government has not gone forward with the investigations since then. Uh, we also think that the government has prime responsibility in this murder because of uh, specific statements from uh, Villavicencio's uh, widow, from his sister, and from now his former uh, 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 political uh, uh, mates from his political uh, party, uh, specifically Captain Edwin Ortega, former military officer, who has said that uh, characters like Maria Paula Romo have close links to the intelligence establishment in Ecuador and are now trying to persecute him for disagreeing in the replacement of Fernando Villavicencio. I wanted to go to Veronica Sorales, the widow of the assassinated presidential candidate Villavicencio, speaking over the weekend. They did not protect him as they should have protected him. The state was in charge of Fernando's security. The state is directly responsible for the murder of my husband, Fernando Villavicencio. The state still has to give many answers about everything that happened. His personal guards did not do their job. I do not want to think that they sold my husband to be murdered in this infamous way. Andres Rouse, you're making very significant um, accusation talking about the president, uh, President Lasso, being connected to narco traffickers. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you if you could further elaborate on that and also talk about President Lasso recently securing over 24 million gun cartridges, now declaring a state of emergency, announcing immediate mobilization of the armed forces. Do you think these measures will— um, be sufficient to address the root causes of uh, security and violence in Ecuador, something you're connecting him directly to. Yeah, Lasso has been completely negligent in terms of uh, the, the security policy in Ecuador. Uh, he is always reacting to problems on the ground. Uh, he basically dismantled the security uh, ministry uh, the coordination that uh, used to exist between the police and the military intelligence with the civilian intelligence that we have in, in the country. Unfortunately, Lasso has been linked by the uh, police intelligence to mafia organizations, including through his uh, brother-in-law, Danilo Carrera, who is the current president of Banco Guayaquil, uh, via Ruben Chérez. You see, uh, in, in Ecuador, we've have the, we've had recently these 
really uh, amazingly uh, incredible murders. For example, the murder of Ruben Cherres. Ruben Cherres was a person linked to Lasso's brother-in-law, also linked to the Albanian mafia, a drug trafficking organization. And this person was a key witness in Lasso's impeachment process. He was found assassinated uh, uh, only a few uh, blocks away from Lasso's beach home in uh, Santa Elena, a province in Ecuador, and this has not been uh, uh, cleared so far. People in the in the establishment media and in the government have stopped talking about Ruben Cherez, and we think that this type of behavior is similar to what happened now with Fernando Villavicencio. It is extremely worrisome, I insist. We are in these snap elections precisely because Lasso was linked to the narco-trafficking organizations and there was wide opposition in the parliament against his government and his policies. And he decided to uh, basically uh, close parliament and call for these snap elections. So we're in this process precisely because of his links with the narco-trafficking organizations. Now, we think that we need an investigation we need uh, immediate support from all around the world. We need the international community put put their eyes on what's happening in Ecuador. We know Lasso tried to postpone or suspend the elections after the assassination of Fernando Villavicencio, and we need to take care of our democracy. Now, we are really in a moment of great despair in Ecuador, and uh, we've had a uh, uh, you know, a, a crisis very recently because of this assassination. And we need to go forward with these elections to seek finally truth, to seek reconciliation, to seek justice in Ecuador. Are you concerned about speaking out so directly against the president? Uh, and also, what will happen to him after he leaves the presidency? Do you think he should be charged, that he should be put on trial? Of course, I am concerned. This is not the first time I have been outspoken about Guillermo Lasso. I was one of the uh, prime uh, uh, people who accused him of having offshore uh, resources hidden in, in tax havens and in, you know, trusts. And then finally, the uh, Pandora Papers came out and, and they showed that I, I was right about these accusations. I was uh, also earlier this year, I accused Lasso directly of uh, creating an offshore bank in Panama for money laundering purposes to hide money from trafficking organizations and also from tax evasion. I was threatened by President Lasso himself saying that uh, he would sue me for defamation and other causes. Uh, and I said, bring it on. That way I could prove that I was right. He hasn't done it since, but he has also gone to Colombia to pressure the Colombian uh, prosecutor general to accuse me of uh, unfounded links. Uh, I then accused the, the attorney general, the prosecutor general of Colombia for that. So I have been in this uh, place before, and I am sure of what I'm doing. Just like the Pandora Papers proved me right, I know that in this case, uh, the, the links are very serious. And it is sufficient for anybody interested in what's going on in Ecuador to ask the question, who killed Ruben Cherres? And we will have clear answers that will help us respond who killed Fernando Villavicencio.
Well, Andrei Zaraz, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Ecuadorian politician, economist, running for vice president of Ecuador, along with presidential candidate Luisa González. She's the only woman running for president in the 2023 Ecuador election. In 2021, uh, uh, Arauz ran for president and lost to Guillermo Lasso. Go to democracynow.org in Spanish for our Spanish interview that we'll conduct just after this show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah. Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.